there's just so many ways for you to sink the ship in those early stages. You just, it's all through running out of money and overspending and the retail industry with the nuances of distribution and all the challenges of spend that go into that. I just think if you, if you don't really know, you can trip a million times over Mm -hmm. going through that process. And I think it was a combination of luck, grit, and tenacity that got us through those stages. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I'm really happy to have Robert Petrarca on today with me as a guest. He's the co-founder and CEO of Maxine's Heavenly. So Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Christy. So happy to be here. It's awesome. So why don't we start with a little background? Why don't you tell us what Maxine's Heavenly is in case there are people that don't know, and then also how you wound up as the CEO and co-founder. Sure. We'll love to jump right in. So Maxine's, we make delicious homemade style cookies that are sweetened by nature. That's how we kind of summarize our full story. So right now we are a cookie company producing delicious homemade style cookies that were inspired by a family recipe. We say Maxine was a real person. This is not her original recipe, but it is based on her very unhealthy original recipe that we've adapted for today's diet. And we uh, use only the cleanest ingredients, which for us starts with uh, more conscious sugars. So we sweeten using only coconut sugar and dates, which we believe are sugars that are as close to nature as possible, meaning they're as easy as possible for your body to digest versus highly processed sugars. And even a lot of the zero sugars that are trending in the the market now. So yeah, so I got to Maxine's Heavenly very indirectly. I'm not a food person. I'm not even a traditional business person. I was actually in uh, performing arts, which is funny and nonprofit world. So but I am a second time founder. So I co-founded a organization that's a 501c3 nonprofit up in Northern California in wine country. It was a cultural arts organization that partnered with the state park to raise capital for the park and also had all these winery and, and food purveyor partnerships. So that's how I sort of wandered into the business side of things. And I think realized that I was sort of an entrepreneur locked up in a different body. And uh, as soon as I went out that door into entrepreneurship, just realized like, oh man, I really love this. And and it sort of spoke to, I think, a lot of experiences I had growing up and and then really just kind of fell face first into, into that world. That nonprofit scaled very, very quickly. It was a lot of learning lessons and scaling up businesses. Interestingly though, I think even though we try to separate nonprofit from profit worlds and, and for-profit worlds and view them as different things, I mean, really there's a lot of the same challenges, especially when you scale quickly. And that was some great learning lessons. And uh, at the time I was doing that, my co-founder, Tim, who was Maxine's son and a good friend of mine, a good family friend, was just kind of coming to me to pick my brain about starting up businesses. And he had this idea to turn his mother's recipe into a sellable product. And so I just would help him and ideate and hold these weekly meetings and kind of just uh, really fell in love with the food space. I'd always been very passionate about it. And this felt like a perfect coming together of my personal interests, which is on food and health, plus the experience I was having in early business scaling. And it was kind of a match made in heaven. And sort of, I, I kind of just fell deeper and deeper into starting up and, and helping support the early stages of Maxine's Heavenly until 
here we are uh, now. I'm the CEO and and happily uh, running the organization with uh, Tim's participation and a whole new team of people, which is great. That's incredible. It's interesting. Your background really is one of the. I I, I don't think I've had anyone on with your background, <laughs> so that's pretty cool. What were you doing when you say you were in performing arts? What were you actually doing? Yeah, so I initially started as a performer, which wow. is funny. Yes. And then I went into um, more of the production side of things. So I, I was in Los Angeles for a bunch of years and got into like production managing and production coordinating, which by the way, if you ever want like just like jumping right in the trenches of some of the hardest work <laughs> in the world. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it's like the, the people that arrive first to set, leave last and yeah. really responsible for so many things, which it just is a good, I mean, it's a good match for the qualities I have as a person, I think. So I went into like that producing side of things and directing, and then that led me to the other organization up in Northern California. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it is definitely a really bizarre story. Cause I think, I think a lot of people tend to have especially in the arts world, they have like either, either sort of that really artistic mind that, yep. that lacks organization yes. or a very organizational mind that lacks creativity. And I definitely am sort of like a true Libra. I got both sides of the brain working, I, I think to some degree, whether that's a pro or a con still to be determined, but, but they're both there, I guess. So. It's interesting. I'm curious to know, because I'm really familiar with the production side of, yeah. of business too. And I'm curious, it, it feels I'm sure it sounds surprising to a lot of people listening, like you did that. And now you're, you're the CEO of a food brand, but I suspect there are a lot of things during the chaos of production that really helped yeah. you with being, being an entrepreneur and not sort yeah. of freaking out every time something doesn't go the way it's supposed to go. Yeah. Oh man, that is so, so accurately put for sure. There are a lot of crossover skills. And I think that is one thing you definitely learn. There's a fire every single day in production. And if you yes. treat everything like the end of the world, you're just in a constant state of stress. And I think that's so common, especially for entrepreneurs in early stage entrepreneurs too, yeah. because you care so much about what you're building you take everything and give it the utmost importance, which is a good quality when you, yep. when you need to believe in and support a brand, but it can also be detrimental, especially long-term because it's not sustainable long-term as a person, as an organization, sort of like accepting what doesn't quite go well and figuring out how to use that to move forward, I think is a really important quality. And it's very hard in the early stages that, and you know, the other thing is like organization, in general, I think that there, there were a lot of crossover organizational skills that really helped me. Just um, having to manage and do everything in production mm -hmm. world is a great skill as an entrepreneur. And I think as a, you know, there's all these stages of transition in an organization stage, especially for a CEO, and you have to, I think, migrate your mentality. But in the early stages, I think there are a lot of requirements for you to fill in gaps because you just can't hire every, every possible need um, for the organization. And so you have sort of like CEOs taking on an operator role as well as a visionary role. And of course, the goal, I think, for any CEO ultimately is to lean heavier into the vision and the future and the, the holistic health of the organization. Mm -hmm. But you don't have that luxury in early stages. And yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a real puzzle for the mind to kind of go through all those different transitions and think self-awareness is really important in that process. Can you talk a little bit about how how it was for you starting? I mean, you, you've been, the company's been around for how many, like eight-ish years now? We started in 2013, but had like so many early years of just selling in farmer's markets and like hand delivering to stores. And it oh, wasn't, wow. 
Yeah, 16 is when I, halfway through 16, 2016 is when I came permanently into the organization and left okay. my other life. And then 18 was the first year we actually took on any external capital. So I think those are all kind of important benchmarks because Definitely. what happened from 13 to 16 is very different than what happened from 18 onward. Well, talk about 13 to 16. I mean, that's three years of of probably yeah. really grinding it out and and talk about the beginning because that's probably, the, yeah. is that the hardest part? Or I don't even know. Is that the hardest part? Maybe not. You know, I think 2013 to 16 for us, and it's different for every organization, was a little bit easier because we, Mm -hmm. both my co-founder and I had other businesses. He was actually in computer software. And this is something that we just like, you know, we'd go into a a shared facility and make cookies like one day a month. Or no, we would do it at that point. We do it on like Friday nights. And then we would start selling on Saturday and Sunday at farmer's market. And it was just sort of a weekend thing. And I think we had this bizarre, I mean, this is just talking about our ignorance in the, in the industry, but like, we had this idea. It's like, Oh, we'll just get into like 50 stores. We'll start paying ourselves (laughs) and then we'll leave our other jobs. And then you're, you start looking at the economics of selling like a a $6 box of cookies. And you're like, I think, I mean, it might be like 10 years before we're paying ourselves. So the 13 to 16, I think was sort of the easier year because we hadn't really thrown ourselves in, but then I I think, you know, that period from 2016 till our, and really honestly through like a year and a half ago, I was like, some of the most challenging because the team is very thin. The capital is really, really tight. And as you know, in this industry, margins are are, are tough yeah. and it's all about a lot of units and it's very hard in the early stages to be profitable. And there's just so many ways for you to sink the ship in those early stages. You just it, It's all through running out of money and overspending. And the retail industry with the nuances of distribution and all the challenges of spend that go into that. I just think if you, if you don't really know, you can trip a million times over uh-huh. going through that process. And I think it was a combination of luck, grit, and tenacity that got us through those stages. But then you start looking at like, as soon as you get some capital and some team and some progress, I mean, I start, I look at our moments right now as like, man, we are as lucky as lucky can be to just have more people behind us from investors all the way straight through to, to our internal employees that are just like one of the most fantastic team of people. That's fantastic to hear. I'm curious about the capital raise, the first one that you did. How, how did you guys go about getting yourselves ready for that from a collecting data or what you were presenting yeah. or how you were, how you guys were sort of showing up to those meetings? Sure. And we've gone through a few capitalization rounds. So we did some early convertible note rounds, and then we did a a seed round that we closed last year with more institutional venture capital. And I think the needs of each phase are very different. And it's different for every organization, how you solve those early problems of getting capital. You know, fortunately for me, I had come from this nonprofit world where we had a lot of people supporting that organization had some great relationships and people knew that I was migrating to this other business. So we we did some early convertible note rounds with people I knew. And it's like the wild west there. It's like for us, especially in anyone starting a business that that doesn't come from this industry or doesn't mm-hmm. have their MBA or doesn't know the venture world or doesn't have a lot of friends with capital, there's no rule book. And I think people look for that in the early stages, like, hey, how do I do this? And when you get to those venture-backed rounds, it's a lot easier. There's a more standardized process. You know who the players are. You know what the parameters of what they're looking for are. But in those early stages, every angel is different. Every angel syndicate group is different. And you sort of have to tailor your approach to who you have in your personal network that could be supportive. And so one of the things 
we did early on was just be really diligent about building a funnel for capital. You build a funnel for your sales organization and we build a funnel for capitalization organization, capitalization. Um, and so for us, that was building, who's everyone I know who could know someone else. And it's not even just who do I know that can write a check, but who do I know that can help me get connected to somebody else who might help me with this, that, or the other thing. And so we, we did some early rounds through personal connections of mine. You know, I did, I did a, like a, an NCN pitch slam at one point that got us connected to some earlier stage organizations. And then it was just all about networking. I would spend at least three to 10 hours a week dedicated to going through that funnel, setting up meetings, sitting down with people, introducing the brand, hearing people say, it's a great idea. I'm not interested, but I do know this person. And slowly but surely you build up that network and you build the proposition and what you're going to do at each stage. That's an interesting way. I've literally never heard anyone talk about the first bit of capital raising as a funnel. And I think that's a very interesting, smart way to look at it because it is what you're doing, right? It's the same as marketing your brand to consumers or even bigger firms, right? You have have a whole ton of people at the top and then figure out how to pull them down. That's a super interesting way to look at it. I love that. When you do that, is it all about data? Like how are you proving to them the value or the potential, or is it easier to prove it to them because some of its personal connections? I'm curious about. Yeah, no, I think, I think uh, your strategy for like what you're building at each state is different. So it's very, I mean, what data do you have early on? But I think I say this to a lot of people that I connect with that are raising capital. It's like, you do have to come up with a story and support for that story. And Mm -hmm. even if you can't afford expensive data, right? So I think everybody tries, it's very easy in the early stages to get distracted by every single opportunity. And I think what you need to understand in those early stages is what can I do first in this early stage that gives me some sort of foundation to capitalize, to bring in partners, to convince people about the brand's potential and allow me to build on top of that foundation. And so I think like if you're not immediately a well-capitalized organization, that's probably going to be really around trying to prove success or viability in one local chain or one single store. I mean, like it's, I think it's so much better in the early stages to come to an investor with like, Listen, I don't have more than 20 stores, but these yeah. 20 stores in, you know, for us, it was LA, these 20 stores in LA, we have just thrown ourselves into supporting that, not got distracted by every opportunity nationally, not trying to pick up this retailer in the Northwest. We're just on these 20 stores in Southern California. This is the data we're seeing. I mean, these are the velocities we're seeing our cookies move in that store or our product move in that store compared to the other products in the category. And this is how we are going to take that information that we learned, modify the brand and expand and scale. And that scale at each stage might be different. Like for us in the early stages, like we're not, we're still only focused on LA. We may only have, or Southern California, we may only have these 50 stores, but we're going to do what we did to create success in those 50 stores in the whole Southern California region. And then the next round might be around extending that to Northern California. And that might then include, and now, so we need to scale up the co-packer and build distribution in Northern California. And so our capital is going to go toward these same efforts that prove success in SOPAC, plus the capital, the scale at the co-manufacturer, plus whatever regional support we need there as well. And then you build off of that. And I think people get early, founders get really distracted by what they want to do as a vision for the whole brand. You always need to know that and that's your North Star and that's your directional guidance. But to, the tactical today is different. And the tactical today is really, really important 
combined with the vision for tomorrow. Yeah, that's a really good point too, because I, I mean, I've talked to so many people and I've also worked with a bunch of brands that have come to us at a point where it's already, they've already done that. They've already gotten distracted. They've already gotten over-distributed and they already can't support all the retailers. Yeah, And that's like, that's not a good spot to be in, obviously. Because then totally. you're backtracking and you're start, yep. I mean, starting over, but from a very negative place, I think. Yeah. And, and you know, we talk about this as a team, too, because we're really connected to like what parameters are we trying to hit for our next growth inflection point? And we have to all be aligned on what those tactics are like, OK, we're using this capital round to get to this inflection point. And the success inflection markers for that inflection point are these following three to five things. And everybody knows we're targeting those things. And it, it seemed, I mean, that you really have to do that even in the, in the smaller rounds, more importantly in the smaller rounds, because it is really this game of like, you have this much cash in the bank and this much time, and you have that period to do these things or else game over. Yeah. I mean, that's important. And it's, God, that's so interesting to hear you say it that way, because I think as, I mean, you have a really interesting background and I think fundraising is a huge, yeah. huge help. Like you already knew how to do that, but I think- <laughs> Very good point. <laughs> I mean, that's a really, it's one of the hardest things there is to do. I would imagine, I mean, for me, I think the outreach and the raising capital is definitely more daunting than making something awesome, right? Yeah. And so totally. I think for people who are entrepreneurs, a lot of them don't have the same background and they're really in it because they're passionate about the product. And it's hard to know- and sometimes it's a skill to be that organized in your thinking and that sort of measured in your approach. Like it's easy yeah. to be like everything now, all of exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Especially yeah, so if you are a founder and a visionary, because that's exactly. the quality. It's like it's less, it tends to be less tactical, right? So yes. and and so if you don't have somebody that with yes. that tactical mind, like I think it's important to align yourself with somebody who does, because you really do need both. You need the macro and the micro in order to yeah. be successful. But I think the other way to think about it, so and in, in this is your I think you're exactly right, Christy. It's like the the experience in raising capital for a nonprofit was really helpful for us. Yes. But the I think what made us successful there, and I think what has made us successful at Maxine's is that we we don't just think about it as this task, which is around just raising capital. And we look at it as an, a network building thing. And, and we really don't, I don't take personally, when somebody says no, I don't, I don't take that personally. There's so many people that have said no, that I still continue to talk to mm -hmm. and have in my network. And when you look at it as like, listen, I don't know what my conversation with this person is going to lead to. I mean, if I only am focused on, I need this person to write a check, I think it's a very short-sighted approach to capitalization. If I'm looking at it as this may or may not be the right partner for us, both of us, because it is important that it's right for both of us, but forging a connection with this person, expanding my network is only a benefit to me and the organization as a whole. And I think the bigger and broader network you have of people across all capital experiences, business experiences, just the bigger safety net you have underneath you as an organization when something goes wrong, when you stray, you know, you now have all these people that you can turn to for guidance, for advice, for it's if you're just focused on any of this person to write a check. First of all, you're not even focused on, is it the right person to write a check? Second of all, I think you're losing the opportunity of really understanding who that person is, what value they might be providing to you, and what value you can also provide to them, not just about what I need from you, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Where, what's next for you guys? Like, what's your challenge today? Yeah, well, you know, we're still in earlier stages growth, so there's yeah. always so many challenges. Like, one, no one moves as fast as you want 
them to move. I think that, you know, and, and like everybody else, that's universal. (laughs) Yeah. It's actually good to be impatient. I think it means you really want it, but you know, like everybody else, there's, it's, it's just the most bizarre time. I think being adaptable is just so important right now. So it's like, when you look at just what has happened over the last two years, it's insane. I think the challenges we thought would come in 2020 really haven't started coming to like the last year from a supply chain perspective. So yeah. of course, like everybody else, I'm concerned about supply chain inflation, where the markets are heading, both on institutional capital, but also on consumer habits with a recession. If it's, if it's pending, how much is it going to impact, yeah. you know, higher end spending, especially on food. So definitely have our eyes on that. But also just, I think the marketing world has changed like crazy. I don't know if you've been, what you've been hearing from other brands, but it's like, this explosion of e-commerce in 2020 and most of 2021, the changes to iOS that just like killed e-commerce brands, you know, the migration to and from and back to brick and mortar retailers. I think, I mean, it's just like these things, these trends that would happen over five to 10 years are now happening in like five to 10 months, if not sooner. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you would know more than anyone. I mean, it's like, this is your whole world, right? It's just like, Yes. What a crazy time. And I think if you are just not on your toes with what's happening and thinking ahead, I think you can easily just get run over. I don't totally. know your thoughts I, on that. I think that you're so right about how fast it's going. And I think that it's, there was a point in time where it was, I'm not going to say easy to do it yourself, but easier, right? Mm-hmm. It was easy to market on Facebook and Instagram and you could get to anybody you wanted to really quickly. And that's why e-commerce exploded the way it did. Yep. And then when they changed it, everybody was lost. And now yep. I think a lot of people are still lost. And I think that the self-serve model, I can figure out all my marketing on my own is much more challenging today than it was two years ago or five years yeah. ago. And so I think that you have to sort of, You can't do, like you said it yourself, you cannot do every single thing there is to do for your brand. And once in a while, I think you need some experts. And I think that's where it, I think that's where marketing is right now because it is changing so fast. The platforms change, what you're supposed to do on the platforms change. You know, when you launched a brand 15 years ago, you had a couple of places you could be and that was challenging, but you at least knew what to do with your money and you knew how it was going to work. And now it's like literally the wild west. You could be in a 30 five different platforms and it's challenging and the data collection is not, not what it was two years ago. You're right. So it's interesting. It's definitely an interesting time. And you know, the same thing, it's the same funnel that you talked about from a capital raising perspective. You've got to make sure that you have awareness, but there are no brands that I've talked to in the early to mid stage that could think only about that. There just Mm -hmm. isn't enough money to do yeah. it that way anymore. So you've got to be somewhere at the lower funnel really quickly, which is challenging. Yeah. So it's all very, it's, it's definitely challenging. And I think what you said about the way you raise capital and what you decide you're going to use it for, I'm sure for you guys, there's, there was a time when it was all about brand and all about making sure that people knew who you were clearly. And so those are the things that I think are super important. Like the fundamentals don't change, but the way we're marketing wild. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It feels like, I don't know your thoughts on this, but it feels like now more than ever, it's important that you do that fundamental core work about how you speak to people different. I think, especially like even when you just look at social ads or social content, I mean, this is the age of content, right? I think a year and a half ago, which feels like four years, five years, 10 years ago at this point, (laughs) a year and a half ago, 
I think you, you could get away with everybody sort of doing the same ad around like, you know, them versus us content or yeah. like the recipe content or the partnerships and giveaway content. And of course, like we still do that as a brand too, but I think now more than ever, it's important to understand like how you differentiate, why you have reason to exist in the category yes. and how the content and the community you create for your consumers is different and something that they want to buy into because we're just literally drowning in, in content and opportunity and marketing messaging. I mean, how can you hear the difference? You can't. And I think when you, you said buy into, and I think that's the word, it's not about getting someone to buy something. It's about having them buy into your something because it's gotta be, they have to identify with it and make it their something because otherwise you lose the opportunity to have long life time value of a customer or advocacy, all the things that brands want. And there are too many brands, honestly, there are too many brands starting up every single day. And so being able to own a space in someone's heart or mind still really matters. It's an old school sort of way of talking about a brand, but if you can't do that now, I don't know what your experience has been, but I think capital has tightened up. And so really being able to show the long-term value based on some consistency, some learning, some, I really get this consumer and I know what they want. That's more important than ever right now. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you said, right. It's like, there are too many brands. I mean, cookies, for example, too, like, I mean, we want, you know, it's like, we wandered in not knowing anything about this. Like if I, going back, I don't know that I would ever go the same route. I would, I would really think about differentiation and like, is this a dream personally for me? Or is this really something that the market needs? Mm -hmm. Um, And cookies are as crowded as it gets. So like, we have to do the diligence on that work, especially now. I mean, I I think like, I, I feel like two years ago, some report came out that was like, you know, cookies is a, one of the fastest growing categories or something. After all these years of people being like, cookies are stale and dead and we don't invest in cookies. Now, suddenly it's like every brand has a cookie on shelf. Yeah. And especially in the natural arena, I think we were talking about this in one of our earlier conversations one-on-one about just in in general, how nuanced the natural specialty world is getting. And and really, it still is a small sliver of the pie and everyone's trying to slice it up more and more. And so this is keto, this is paleo, this is grain-free, this is, and, and it's like, there's so much noise about health attributes too. Like we had to stop and ask ourselves like, hey, when we started the brand, just the fact that we were gluten-free and vegan and sweetened with coconut sugar. I mean, that was enough to keep us super differentiated. Well, yep. it's not anymore. Yeah. So what, what is the brand now today in today's market with all the messaging people are seeing? And what do we want it to be in the future? And for us, it has to be about something so much bigger about the than the attributes. And I think especially in natural foods world, people are lean on the attributes as defining the brand. But yeah. an attribute is not a is not a brand. It is right. it is simply a quality. It's a descriptive, right? Yes. And so, what is that experience on top of that? Like, what do I want people to feel with Maxine's Heavenly? And also, what are we when we're beyond just twelve cookies? So we we have a lot of internal conversations when you talk about challenges. This, this is not really a challenge. It's actually an exciting opportunity. But a lot of internal conversations of what what is the vision for the brand in 5 years how is it different than it was and how do we keep building experiences that augment the brand message not the attributes yeah that's a really tough question yeah. but it, it it's interesting because it's sort of come full circle because i think there was a, t- a point in time at the beginning 
I don't know, in, in the last five years where attributes were the thing that yep. people talk about, but now everyone can say this almost the same thing. You guys are different actually, I think, which I really like about what you're doing. Like you didn't go to the keto place. And yep. I think that's a good thing because it's too busy. There's too crowded and, yep. and it's trendy. And it's one of those things that, you yep. know, we're, I think we passed the peak on that and we're yep. going to be onto something else soon. So, and, but what we're never going to not be as a culture who really likes to have a dessert every once in a while. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. We say all the time we are not trend chasers. Like we are in the dessert category. It is an an indulgence. I mean, a cookie, a cookie is sugar, flour, butter, like traditionally, right? I mean, that's what it is. It's fats combined with sugar and starches. Like that, that's why it's such an enjoyable experience. And I think you can try to capture as many qualities as you can, but if you don't essentially capture the nostalgia, then then what what do you stand for? And for us, especially being inspired by a homemade recipe. I mean, like what we're trying to do is make taste experience next level in the category. And it's really our North star. I think I was telling you this as well. It's our North star star as a brand. It's like where we are today is like on the path to that. I think we, every time we develop a new product or look at formulation, we're looking at trying to improve that experience and, and blur the line between natural specialty and conventional. So it's really just about every consumer would want a good cookie and it happens to be the cleanest yep. one you can find. Yep. And I will attest to how delicious it is personally, because <laughs> I had to, I had to give them away to my daughter because I was just, I was like, these are, they were way too good. Way too good. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. no, they really were. <laughs> Thank you. I think so too. I think so too. I really yeah. do. And I think, especially when you look at the category, I think they're, they're one of like that homemade style is what we really want to be known for. Similar to like the way Pepperidge Farm was, right? It's like you yeah, had your Chips Ahoy and the or exactly your Chips Ahoy's and Oreos, and those were very manufactured cookies. Yeah. And then here you have like the Pepperidge Farm, the farmhouse style cookie, and it's like it feels like oh, this is what comes out of my kitchen, not a production line. And that's yeah. what we want to do. It's like oh, this is this came out of Maxine's kitchen, yeah. and it, and it tastes like it was made for you. It doesn't taste like it came out of a factory. It tastes like it came out of someone's kitchen. And I think some of the new stuff, some of the keto stuff and some of that, I mean, I do think that tastes manufactured even more than some of the older stuff because they're trying so hard to make it taste like something else. Yeah. So that's an interesting place. And I think regardless of indulgence is indulgence and people are never going to stop doing it, but being able to do it from a place of this is really, truly better quality ingredients. That doesn't feel trendy to me. That feels exactly that's here to stay the whole. Exactly. People are, are paying attention to that even yeah. more so I think than a specific diet, just like, what am I actually doing to my body? Yep. Yeah. So I think that's a really great place to be. And we forget it's like consumers are really looking for just, I mean, we say permissible indulgences. That's how people internally yep. talk about the category, but that permissibility is, is really like, that's the entry. That's the, that is the permission to come in and participate in the brand, even though it is an indulgence. And really consumers are looking for that more broadly than I, than we think, oh, I believe. Absolutely. Like, I always use my family as a, as a, as a marker. I mean, they're very conventional eaters, right? Like they don't know the nuanced differences between keto and paleo and grain-free. I mean, they really don't. They just want somebody to say like, Hey, this is, this is allowable. And yes. when I look at the back, I go, okay. I mean, I, I it. invented it, but ingredients I can say and pronounce, right? It's yep. like, that's a, that's, that's the permissibility I want. I don't need 26 attributes on the side that I don't even know the difference between any of them, Yeah, you know, otherwise you're just really hyper 
target and focus on just that small percentage of consumers who are the diehard. I mean, I happen to be one of those people. I am like the diehard natural specialty consumer, but I also recognize that's not really where most people are. That's right. It's not. And it's not, even if there are people at there at a moment in time, it, the, the wave changes constantly. And so exactly. Can, yeah. 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 So and you, if you build your brand on it, on a trend, if the trend is gone tomorrow, what do you have to stand on? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I love, I love that you're thinking about it that way. And I think it's important that we have better quality indulgences because we're all doing it. I mean, yep. we might be secretly doing it, but we're still doing it. I mean, I think oh, yeah. 90% of the population is still doing it. And the rest yeah, of the population is boring in my yeah, opinion. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And listen, like what, a, like, you know, if you get, if you get taste right and you get attributes, right. Like yep. that's a home run. It really yeah. is. It's that yeah. simple. We overcomplicate yeah. it. So tell me before we wrap up, I, I mean, we could talk for hours, I suspect, but tell me where, where do you think, where do you see you guys in three years from now? Where do you want to be? So we want to be, I mean, we, we really say internally, like we want to be today's Pepperidge Farm. Like we, mm-hmm. we want to, we want to be a nationally recognized snacking brand that is really known for leading the way in taste with ingredients that shock you with how simple they are. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really that simple. And it, we want to create taste first experiences on all product lines. I think today it's, you know, 12 flavors of cookies. What I see in the next few years is us being a, a baking company, a, a national snacking brand, probably inside and outside of just the cookie category, but always our products, they have to tie to a homemade style taste first experience yeah. that blows your mind when you look at the ingredient panel. And so it's very simple, but I think in that simplicity, it's incredibly powerful. Yes. Yes. And I would imagine not as easy as it sounds. No, it's not. We're just going to be the sounds. next Pepperidge Farms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Plus, for, I mean, for like, listen, formulation is, I, I, honest to God, in all the things I've approached in my life, the most challenging, I think, is formulation in, in baked products. Like, it is really, really tough. And, yes. and there's a reason why so many products taste the way they do in the natural specialty space, because it's like, you don't have gluten, you don't have plant-based binders, you don't have eggs, you don't have, I mean, it's just like you, you pull all these things out and you're trying to still have a taste experience that emulates what people are used to. And it's really, you, right? Yeah. 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 Not to mention, oh, and also it needs to last 10 to 12 months mm-hmm. in its packaging so that it can survive the distribution system. Like there's a reason why food got to where I think there's this this perception that it's like this evil empire of corporate people who are just like trying to poison people yeah but it's like no we got there because we needed shelf stability and we you know there was a time where it's like it was a lot of innovation in food to like create things we just didn't know the repercussions that came with those things you know yes And now that yeah, we sorry. do, it is an evil empire. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting point, though, because you're right. We did get there for a reason. Yeah. And I think now we're at a place where people are saying, wait, what did that cost us? Like that exactly. got us a lot of things, but it also cost us a lot from a health perspective. And so I yeah. think that's a really interesting point. But yeah, I I definitely think that there is this sort of you guys are the bad guys, big food. Yeah. You mess yeah. up the world. and. Yep. Yeah. 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 I think your point's right though. It's like, uh, not once we know we can't go back and we have to resolve and fix and move forward, but the history of food, it's like, you know, we, we need to feed a growing population and there were a lot of challenges in, in doing that. And so yeah. we've done it, but now there are repercussions to our health, to the environment, to everything. Yes. And so now it's our obligation, our duty to fix that. And it takes pioneers and people with vision to do that. And that's what the natural specialty space is built on. And that's why it's so 
rewarding for me. It's just filled with wonderful people. You know, I just started with like hippies at the convention center in Anaheim, like probably yes. 5,000 people. Now there's like 500,000 people going yep. to this convention. This started with a group of people who were innovators and pioneers and who believed in fixing that system. And I think that torch has been passed. There's a lot of money going into it, but I think there's still a lot of founders that lead with integrity. And that's really rewarding to be in this industry, knowing it's like people who are trying to make a profound and positive impact on the future of food and ourselves, our yes. personal selves. Yeah. Amazing. That's the best end quote. I love it. I always think about the whole time I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about how I'm going to, what I'm going to pull out for the beginning. And that <laughs> yeah. is really awesome, actually. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think you're right. I can honestly talk like for hours with you about it. So yes. I, love, yes. I love this stuff and yes, your perspective me too. is fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been so great. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.